I hadn't thought of this when I wrote my sermon this week, but when I was listening to the psalm at all three of the masses, uh, it reminded me of an experience that I had that I thought was interesting. There in Psalm 139 uh, that we read, there is the verse, For you yourself created my inmost parts, you knit me together in my mother's womb. About 10 years ago, my colleague and friend Margaret Irwin, who was the rector of All Saints Church in Palo Alto, uh, her daughter, one of her daughters, uh, was going to have a baby, was her first baby. And Margaret went with her for one of the appointments uh, with her daughter. And while they were there, they, uh, she had an ultrasound, you know, on the, and Margaret was looking at the image in the, uh, on the ultrasound and saw the baby with the baby's head, you know, just as it's coming together like this. And she said, when I saw uh, this, I thought of that verse from Psalm 139, you have knit me together in my mother's womb. It's interesting that uh, the sacred literature sometimes uh, has application even in the most clinical circumstances. So I thought that was a good thing when I heard it again. Uh, that was good. I want to preach on all three of the readings, and here's the, the three themes that I think are important. The first is, uh, is the relationship between God and the creation that God made and called good reciprocal in some way? And this is a, a, about the whole issue of God's sovereignty and how we understand God's sovereignty and whether we're very absolute about that or not. And what is Jeremiah getting at about the idea that somehow human beings, um, in a sense, can influence uh, God's decisions, this um, unmoved mover, thought, thinking itself. How do we understand what that might, might mean? And then we have Paul's letter to Philemon uh, in the New Testament. It's, uh, you heard Stephen read the whole letter to you. That's the whole letter. And uh, we hardly ever read it, so I thought I'd say something about that because it, it has something to do with the way Christian people live in the midst of and are sort of always in tension uh, with the cultural norms and the realities in which we find ourselves in every age. And then finally, we have what some might say are Jesus' fairly hyperbolic comments about the nature of discipleship. And we have somebody saying, unless you hate your mother and your father and your brother and your sister and even life itself, you cannot be my disciple. And then at the end, he throws an additional hard one, you must give up all your possessions. What does it mean? And particularly, I want to talk about the word hate and how we might understand it in uh, the context of my teacher, O.C. Edwards, who said, it's not important what the Bible says, it's important what the Bible means. Jeremiah was a prophet. His book is the biggest book in the Old Testament, so he counts as one of the major prophets. I say over and over again, major prophets only mean they have a big book. Minor prophets mean they have a little book. It doesn't mean that the minor prophets' points that they make or their prophecy is somehow minor 
and the major prophets' prophecies are major. They're all the same, but Isaiah had plenty to say, Jeremiah had plenty to say, and Ezekiel had plenty to say about the situation on the ground in Israel in the 7th, 6th, 5th century BCE. So Jeremiah is talking today about something that's going to happen uh, after this prophecy or happens historically on the continuum, and that is the Babylonian captivity. But he, he has, makes his prophecy because he visits the potter's shed. And he sees somebody, a potter, making a pot, and that the potter made a mistake fashioning the pot and had to redo it. And so he makes a connection and says, uh, the, potter, it's a matter, the potter is God, the pot is Israel and all of the people who are part of the people of Israel. And um, God is prepared to uh, do some evil deeds to them if they don't listen. And they don't understand that they need to be faithful to the covenant that has been made between uh, the people of Israel and God. Remember, the whole, one of the whole themes of the Old Testament is God's unwavering faithfulness to the, to the people of the covenant and ultimately, we will see, to all of the creation and the necessity of, that we all have to reciprocate in some way, to express our thanksgiving for that reality. This is part of the great mystery uh, why is there something instead of nothing? You know, God, uh, if you believe in this view of God's absolute sovereignty, God doesn't need anything. I watched a YouTube video this week, uh, an interview with a, famous, a well-known evangelical pastor in Minneapolis, Minnesota named John Piper. He is a Calvinist Baptist. There's a combo. And he's one of the most effective exponents of this particular outlook. He's obviously biblically very conservative and literalist. Uh, and he has a very, very extreme view of God's sovereignty. And one of the questions that some, you know, call in and ask John Piper said, how can we believe in a God who, in the biblical witness, kills all these men, women, and children, floods the earth, does all of this kind of thing? What kind of a God is that? And John Piper said, God can do anything he wants. He's God. So if he wants to smite us dead, if he wants to rearrange the geography, if he wants to do all these things, he can do that. There's nothing in any of us that God needs. Do you believe that? Here we have Jeremiah speaking about a sovereign God who says also, I can change my will. I can change my mind. So there has to be something involved with the relationship between God and the creation that God made and called good and our essential part in the cosmos and in the fulfillment of its purposes. Each one of you are necessary 
to fulfill God's plan. God is not capricious. He didn't create the world for, our, for his amusement. It is part of the middle. Why did he need to, re, to extend? You know? Thomas Aquinas called God thought thinking itself. Pretty self-contained. And yet here we are. And so I think this passage from Jeremiah, which could be read in terms of, you better get with the program or there's going to be trouble and plenty of it, could be thought of in a more affirmative sense and understood as God is prepared to change together with us. You could interpret that as meaning the more we change, the more God changes because somehow we're living a life in conformity with his purposes. But when we read in the Bible, in the Old Testament and the New Testament, about the importance of fearing God, it has to be understood in the, the meaning of the original languages, which is awe. Not fear. Many people who have been given 150 cc's of fear of God are now lost to the church forever. That is the practical result of that kind of teaching and preaching. Except for people who really love to hear how wretched they are. I have been a pastor for a while and I've actually had people come out the door and say to me, the problem with you, Father Brewer, is that you don't tell us often enough how sinful we are. You know, I could do it if you want. <laughs> I mean, good night, nurse. So there's a, there is something at work in the creation that's part of our nature, too, as we contribute to things, and it's called perversity. My own personal belief is that perversity is a synonym for sin. You know? What makes a kid tear the wing off a fly? Some would say, well, he was always interested in being a scientist, and that's called pure research. Right? My point is, is that we have to understand God's sovereignty in terms of uh, this reciprocal interaction and relationship, you know? Anglican Christians are particularly well situated to do this because uh, if there's a theological outlook in its formative period that uh, had deep influence on Anglicanism and certainly certain seg seg segments, it's Calvinism. But some famous Anglican divine a long time ago said, well, you know, Anglicans have an Arminian clergy, a popish liturgy, and a Calvinist theology, <laughs> right? Arminius was a figure who sort of stepped away from Calvin in terms of double predestination. So that meant that something in us has the power to choose. It isn't just, you know, God doesn't need anything from us. God uh, doesn't, no, nothing we do will influence God. I don't believe that, and I never have. 
So we move now from the idea of God's sovereignty to Philemon and how part of the cooperative nature uh, that we're talking about begins to be at work in the New Testament witness. Philemon is a, uh, an associate of Paul's in the gospel. He was uh, somebody who was obviously converted in Paul's missionary work. And uh, he's writing to Philemon to ask him a favor. He wants to spend some of his capital. In prison with him is a former slave named Onesimus. And Onesimus happened to have been Philemon's slave, and he ran away. And so Paul is asking Philemon to take him back, not as a slave, but as an equal. It might interest you to know that there is a tradition in early Christianity that contends there's some references that Onesimus became the first bishop of Ephesus. And Ephesus was one of the locations in the ancient Near East that began as Christianity spread and developed to develop the canon of the New Testament, the books that we call sacred or canonical, you know, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, that sort of thing. And uh, so maybe Onesimus had a particular interest in putting Philemon in the, in the canon because uh, he was directly the product of uh, um, Paul's urging on Philemon to take him back as an equal. Now, some people criticize this uh, small epistle because there's nothing in it that condemns slavery. You know, Jesus is silent on the subject of slavery in the New Testament, just as he is silent about matters of human sexuality. And so one could say, well, Paul, and they, slavery is assumed. Nobody begins to think about the moral implications, actually until Paul says some things in his other writings like there is no Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. All are one in Christ. So that seed gets planted in people who begin to respond to the divine initiative and say, you know, this, this institution is a moral evil and it's got to go. And we begin to see things even in the New Testament that speak of that. If you were a preacher in the Deep South in 1852 and you preached on this text, you could be put in jail. Why? Because Paul is asking a slave owner to take a slave back as a free person. So the question is, what does the church do in every age to maintain, create, and hone its prophetic edge? How much, how much risk do you take? And Paul is urging Philemon to do something very important as a Christian witness in an age that would find this very difficult. Uh, today, Luke has uh, uh, the passage about discipleship that's also in the other synoptic gospels in Mark and in Matthew. 
It's his version of this. He says, if you want to be my disciple, you've got to hate your mother and your father and your brothers and your sisters and even your own life. Uh, this is a personal testimony, but I'm sure there's somebody else besides me in this church who has decided to make a momentous decision in their life about their vocation, who they are, how they understand what they're going to do with their life, what the direction is it's going to take, and have informed their parents and their other relatives that they intend to do this. You will understand this passage completely. So what does it mean when we use the term hate? Well, most of us think hate is a very strong, angry emotion. I hate you. But in fact, in the original languages, hate, the way it's used in the ancient Near East, did not mean that. It meant to separate, to create distance. So every time we wish to be true to ourselves, true to our principles, uh, good Christian disciples often, we have to stand at some relief, at some distance from those who resist and push back. It's important to be able to do that with the members of your family, to be able to have some distance, uh, to remain uh, non-anxious, to the reactivity and anxiety of other people and to be true to yourself. You know, you need, this is a subtle thing. A lot of people think that means if, I need, if I'm going to do something my family doesn't want me to do and my conscience tells me I need to do it or I've made the decision to do it, uh, the, the, the maintaining of distance, the, the use of... The, the ancient use of the word hate does not mean cutting off. It means having the right kind of distance. There have been some studies that have been made that suggest that, I'm speaking about people with living families and parents, that um, if you cut off from your family, it's harder for you to heal There has to be some kind of a relationship. Sometimes all of us know when cutoff is the only solution. It isn't safe for you. But that's not what we mean. In the main, when there are strong differences or clashes of will, how do you remain non-anxious and have the appropriate kind of distance? You know, there's no easy answer to this. But it is necessary, Jesus says, for a good discipleship. What do we mean when we use the word discipleship? Well, one of the things we mean is working on being the best human being you can be. About eight or nine years ago, the Dalai Lama was in San Francisco when he was interviewed by Michael Krasny or one of the people on uh, KQED radio. And he said, well, what... What do you need to do to achieve some uh, form of spiritual maturity, some sense of enlightenment, some 
uh, connection with the other. And the Dalai Lama said, it's very important to be a good person. It's very important to be a good person. Sounds simple, doesn't it? Easy to say and hard to do. But God's grace working in you, the community of faith in our tradition, the sacraments of the church are the means by which we can mature those aspects of our character that we're called to work on. And so by virtue of that, we have some deeper understanding of discipleship. At the end, Jesus says, well, you've got to give away all your possessions. <laughs> How many of you are going to get up tomorrow morning at 8 o'clock and give your stuff away? <laughs> are going to be like St. Francis of Assisi? I actually think that if I were alive in Assisi, when he pulled some of the things that he did when he started out, we would have said, this guy is completely nuts, and you need to stay away from him. <laughs> you know? Most of us don't have that charism, which means gift, or that calling. And I believe that Luke reproduces this true saying of Jesus, because in his own Christian community, they, this group of Gentile Christians, a number of them were fairly well healed. And so they were struggling, and there's some, you know, New Testament backgroundy stuff that you can read about. There were some of his people who were saying, what is the right relationship that I need to have with my stuff? How do I understand the purpose of my possessions, you know? I mean, I hope there aren't any of you like that guy from, who was the CEO of Tyco that went to prison uh, about five or six years ago, and they were remodeling one of his co-ops in Manhattan, and his wife bought a $13,000 shower curtain. I don't know what to say. I don't know what to say. It's a free country. So obviously there needs to be some understanding of our right, the right relationship with our stuff. And that's what Jesus means. What does it mean? Distance. You know? The Bishop of London during World War II, I think William Temple, uh, when during one of the bombings in London, the bishop's house was destroyed in the bombing. And he came up out of the bomb shelter and he saw that the thing had been absolutely blown to smithereens. And he said, thank God I'm free at last. <laughs> You know, I mean, a lot of us are spending time throwing stuff away and giving stuff away. You know, one of the common things, I, well, I'm doing a little downsizing. Good. Maybe that's what it means. I'm not saying that there are times when you and I may be called uh, to uh, give in a, in a way that is sacrificial and painful. But it also helps to know that what we're trying to do is to create the, the sort of disposition, the orientation, the desire in the Christian faith and life uh, for the generous impulse. Father Schlegel, my predecessor, 
Hughes, who was an anthropologist. He used to say, you know what one of the goals uh, are in the Christian faith in life is to be able to move from the condition of what we call kinship altruism, which means that you and I are properly conditioned and raised to look after our families, to look after our immediate circle, to sacrifice, to be generous, to work for security and survival, that that's our first responsibility. And yet the Savior calls everybody to say, not only is that important, but you must learn to apply those same values to people beyond your kinship circle. And part of maturing in the Christian faith and life is learning how to do that and saying, this is how I do it by creating the right kind of distance uh, between, with my stuff. So this week, uh, give thanks for a God who unconditionally loves, accepts, and forgives you, for a God that changes his mind, for the ability for you to change your mind, for the fact that you are needed for the fulfillment of God's purposes for the cosmos, Amen.